it's one of those moments where I'm like, I don't even know what to banter about. Well, I do. I do, actually. So I went home, as we were talking about last week, I went home for a couple of days to visit my folks, which was really nice. Okay. And, uh, did, a, did a lot of reading. I read two books last week, which is, yeah. So many books. So many books. That's like double the amount of one book. Uh, yeah. I was reading Dulubak's Catholicism, which I would definitely yeah. love to do a podcast on one day. Uh, but not right now. I still need to let it kind of... And then I was reading Heidegger's Intro to Metaphysics. Uh, if, if you want to torture yourself, read Heidegger. Read some Heidegger. Can I tell you, can I tell you my Heidegger story real quick? I, I think I've mentioned this before on the Twitterverse, but for um, others. So I had a, a seminarian buddy of mine who was super into Heidegger. And he was like, Anthony, this is college seminary, by the way. Um, you have to take this class. So it's a master's level class. I had the credit. So I was like, okay, fine. I'll, I'll do it. The worst class I've ever taken. Uh, but not without um, some entertainment. So the so they get all these grad students, right? And grad philosophy students are just the worst because they're doing philosophy for the most philosophical reasons. They're doing philosophy because for philosophy's sake, which makes them the most irritating kinds of people. Yeah. Like they the got the soul bro- patch, <laughs> unironically. <laughs> oh, the hats or, and everything. Or their uh, or their embodied nihilism. Or here's the thing: there are three kinds of uh, people in a philosophy course. There's um, uh, law students who are normal because they're just taking a class and they're trying to get stuff. That it's for a purpose. Good, good, good. You've got seminarians, uh, hit or miss, hit or miss. Let's be honest, but they're yep. usually trying to just get the information right. And you've got these philosophy, philosophy peoples, and they're the most irritating. God bless them. I hope they're doing good work. Um, but our professor, uh, he would wear a different wolf T-shirt every day. Huh. Every day, a different wolf T-shirt. Like, there were several wolves. Like, there's moon in the background. Amazing. Kind of like that had... van art. Was that? Kind of like that old van art from the 70s yes, type of thing. exactly yeah. that. Yeah. Exactly <laughs> that. He was 10 years. He was like, I don't care. I like wolves. And, like, had the most majestic of neck beards. It was, it was all in the neck. The entire beard. It was amazing. And you knew he had some sort of faculty meeting if he put a sports coat over the wolf t-shirt <laughs> so i took this class i never had any idea what was going on yeah i wrote some sort of paper on being uh, or dasein and friendship and <laughs> i got a b plus somehow out of it yeah and like i don't know i did i wrote 20 pages i don't know what it meant but i i did it so there that's when i think of heidegger i i have flashbacks to that experience sorry uh, but go ahead yeah no no uh, this is good so i'll, I'll now share uh i did i was one of those uh, I took well. I went through many programs in in, in university in my undergrad, uh, but I ended up in philosophy in the end. Yeah, um, no one's surprised. <laughs> but well, when I started off in computer science, right, right, um, and I enjoyed philosophy, which was really cool and everything. But I didn't take it because I was going to be a priest at the time. At least not at the time. I was just I enjoyed it. But it, I was also never thought about a career in philosophy either. Um, but we had this one professor. He was, I think he was, he was in a chair position for a couple of years. So he was a visiting professor. Uh, he was our Aristotle professor, uh, Tanelli Kukunen, uh, Finnish guy, who always wore, he had like a long blonde ponytail. He had glasses. He had like, a, he always wore cut off shirts. <laughs> and he was, you know, decently fit. And he always yeah. had, he always, and he had a variety of shoes that always had like crosses on them. You know, yeah, it was, he was a unique individual and he would just stand up there and he'd hold his Aristotle without ever actually even, uh, looking at it. Yeah. And he, and he would be able to tell you what's going on in the book and everything like that. It was, he was very impressive. I barely remember anything I took in that class. Um, but I still, I just remember being impressed by him as, as a philosophy professor. He was just, he was, he's one, you're always going to get one of those unique philosophy professors when you're in undergrad. And, uh, he, he always said, he always said, I think he goes, I'm definitely one of the top five Aristotelians in the world. <laughs> so he's very, uh, sure of himself. Yes. There was another professor I had, he did Aristotle. I think he wrote a book on De Anima, which not a lot of people have. And he would always talk about how all the other um, Aristotle professors are actually wrong, and he's right about everything. So maybe it's an Aristotle professor thing. I don't know. Maybe, yeah. Who knows? So, uh, but yeah, no, I suppose reading that last thing. So it was nice. It was uh, it was a little kind of. Um, I just like I remember one day though. I sat there and I read 170 pages. Woo! I've never done that before. It's amazing. I've never done that before. It was really. It was quite. Uh, it was quite beautiful. 
So, um, actually, I don't really have anything else to say. I think those philosophy stories was nice on my part. So, good, good, uh, good. Yeah, yeah. So, welcome to Clerically Speaking. I'm Father Harrison. I'm Father Anthony, and I went to the doctor today for the first time in seven years. Are you? Did you get the COVID? No. So okay. actually, uh, so <laughs> it was back when I did um, a wedding. I was trying to find the quickest way to get a COVID test. And so I was like, oh, I'll call uh, the family practice that I used to go to. And they said they don't do COVID tests. Uh, I was like, you know what? It's been a while since I've gotten a checkup. Uh, let's schedule one. And she said, uh, the, not the very nice secretary lady was like, oh, when's the last time? I'm like, I don't know. I think it's been a few years. And she looked me up on the database and she said, it's been seven years, actually. Um, so you need a whole new intake thing. I didn't count as a patient anymore, even though they had mm-hmm. my records. So today I went and buddy, I got my money's worth. First of all, because my diocese has excellent health insurance for its priests. Wait, uh, but why do you need to worry about that? Don't you just go I to the live doctor? in America. Don't you no. just go to the doctor and not have to worry about getting a bill? No, that's not how that works oh, here. Really? But, uh, huh. <laughs> Strange. I appreciate the people of God who have made it, um, a, you know, uh, health insurance available to me, and it's very good. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Seriously, I actually do mean that because it's, yeah, it's yeah. amazing. So, I got my money's worth for sure, though. I got a tetanus booster in mm-hmm. one shoulder. I got my flu shot in my other shoulder. Mm-hmm. I got uh, some new stomach medication because uh, I've got the, the heartburn and a lot of agita down there, so I got new drugs for that. I got some anxiety medication. Very excited for that. I'm sick of being so anxious all the time that I can't function, so hopefully this will be helpful. I'm getting blood work done. I'm also getting my stomach scoped oh, wow. so they can see what's wrong with, with, with my stomach because of all the stomach problems. And it was wonderful. Nice. Doctor, nice lady, nurse, nice lady, all very helpful, yeah. answering all my questions and stuff. And uh, yeah. It Isn't was, it great it, growing up that you need to start getting like blood work done just to see what's up? Yeah, that's exactly what it was, too. Um, they suggested it because that's what you got to do. And I was like, yeah, let's do this for sure. Let's let's do all of the things. So uh, working on becoming a, a healthy uh, human being. Who's going to we'll actually like eat. Right. Oh, and also I, I'm yeah. going to get a uh, sleep exam as well because okay, yep. I'm always tired no matter how much I sleep. Do you have the apnea? Maybe. We'll find out. Yeah, you'll might find be the out. apnea. It might be something else. Dude, it's but, really, this is one of those really weird things. I actually haven't. I know I've talked about apnea and stuff. I actually haven't used my machine in like a month. Why? Because I keep on, when I use it, I keep on waking up in the middle of the night. And then sometimes I can't fall back asleep because it's weird. It's like, you don't really feel the pressure, but I guess when you're asleep, your body is very sensitive to this or something like that. I don't know. I just, so I haven't, I got, I got to get back on it. The other reason was I hadn't cleaned it for a bit and, uh, Yes, exactly. And you don't, I don't want to get sick. Right. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've been, now that I'm on the meds for the ADHD, I can, I've got, it's on my to task list to clean it so that I can actually start using it again. Uh, because then I'll be like having superpowers. Yeah. Stimulants plus yeah. a full rest <laughs> of sleep. How horrifying. <laughs> I know. Uh, so, um, yeah, let's, uh, let's just, no transition. Let's just go to the Suma. Suma Tweetologica Suma Tweetologica Suma Tweetologica Suma Tweetologica We talk about The Summa Theologica was St. Thomas Aquinas' summary of theology. And the Summa Tweetologica is our summary of things we found interesting on Twitter. Okay. This one's going to be a fun one, I think. I hope. Let's let's have some fun. We'll see. It's been been a serious day. (laughs) Um, This is from Yi. No. Can you rest? Yes. Oh, yes. (laughs) I spoke to Dave Chappelle for two hours this morning. He is our modern-day Socrates. So, okay. Um, first, he uses you know I'm a, I'm a big advocate of two spaces after a period. Uh huh. But he used like four. Y- yes. Yes. Yeah. He did. It, it's it's okay. 
so for those, so Dave Chappelle, do you know who Dave Chappelle is? I do know who I have seen many of his yeah. uh, specials. Yes. So for for those who do not know who Dave Chappelle is, he is a a very affluent comedian, probably one of the best out there. Not recommended for young audiences, absolutely. No. Um. I I. And then Socrates, well, we all know Socrates is a jerk. <laughs> uh, he is a jerk. Right? In that he's always going around and getting people to realize they actually know nothing. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure why Kanye's calling him a Socrates, but I think what he's trying to say that he's one of our modern figures of wisdom. A bold claim. It's a bold claim. However, you know, my friend, Father David from my diocese, loves to talk, he loves comedians. And he's always brought this point to me that I think is actually quite, quite important. He says comedians are in some ways like they can be kind of like prophets to a society because, because of the form of their entertainment, they're, they're given a space to speak about things that most people aren't allowed to speak about. And they can point out a hypocrisy etc to bring a laugh and it's 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 socially normative to allow for them to say this and so uh because of the keen sense of observance that is that a comedian has to have they actually have to be very smart people mm-hmm. right like the greatest comedians um are the ones who are able to really observe the absurdity of life and so i think in this sense I would actually agree with Kanye because I do actually think Dave Chappelle is perhaps one of the best comedians out there. And I think he's, and in that sense, he's definitely a figure of wisdom. Uh, no, I'm not saying this. I don't want people freaking out. I'm not saying this that I approve of every joke he says and stuff like that. That's not right. what I'm saying, but the, so a lot of observations and it's been a bit since I've seen, but like, I, I'll be honest. Like I was a big fan again, not recommended for kids, but back in the day I was a big fan of the Dave Chappelle show. Well, who wasn't? Because it was brilliant, mm-hmm. and there were a lot of there were a lot of episodes that poked fun at like racial stereotypes and stuff like this. But it did it in a way that it poked fun at it, but it also criticized it. That's what a good philosopher should do. And so I don't know. I'm just kind of entertaining it, but I'm like, maybe Kanye's right. Maybe Kanye's right, and maybe Kanye will be president. Who knows? Uh, but um, <laughs> no politics. So- I've um I really appreciated uh comedy and comedy specials and I've watched a bunch of them. And one because it's entertaining and it's fun, but they're also uh, like interesting distillations of the zeitgeist of what's going on in culture if they're good. Uh sometimes they are a reflection of what's going on in the culture. Like I've uh, seen some uh like very postmodern uh stuff in comedy which is very funny but it doesn't say anything. It just deconstructs everything. It refuses mm-hmm. to to close the ironic distance. Right. And it's like, wow. Um, and something about nihilistic comedy has always fascinated me because it comes up really close. So like shows like Rick and Morty or mm-hmm. uh, mm. what's that one with the horse? Um, oh, Bojack, Bojack Horseman. Horseman. Yeah. And these other like nihilistic comedians, like it gets up really close to the reality of like, the world without God and the world without meaning. It goes mm-hmm. right up to the question and it and like, goes all around the it. question and it pokes at the question in all kinds of interesting ways, but then it flies back and just makes a joke about it. So what you're saying is they are the Heideggers of comedy. <laughs> yes. Rick and Morty is Heidegger of comedy. I don't know if I actually believe that, but it's too awesome of a take not to not to not to uh, say. Um, but like like that yeah. that aspect, I found incredibly yeah, interesting yeah, as a reflection yeah. on how human beings are trying to grapple with this. Because you don't have really uh, philosophers in a serious sense right now, mm-hmm. um, uh, at least not very many. But you do have these cultural um, entities, if you will. So I found that very interesting. Uh, the way that uh, comedy has changed over time. And if you want, like, there's always a, a struggle for, like, how much should a priest be in the world and know the culture without mm-hmm. being corrupted by it? Mm-hmm. And I think for anybody in ministry, what is the biggest comedy special that's out right now? I think that's a good way to kind of get into, like, what is going on in the zeitgeist uh, without getting super involved in it because mm-hmm. it's not all good stuff. A lot of it's bad stuff. Right. But to be aware of it, I think, is a very important thing. So in that certain sense, as a commentary on, on culture and thought and society, I do find it fascinating as well as entertaining if they're actually good. 
Okay, I'm going to play off. So, because I've been re-watching Rick and Morty right now. Again, mm-hmm. not not good for kids. But I, I, and I watch it for the reasons you, you mentioned. I've always... It, it's weird. I actually don't even find it that funny mm-hmm. at a lot of times. Like, it's it's smart, but it's not funny sometimes. Like, it's just because it's so depressing. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it is yes. perhaps the most depressing show I've ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. But that's what I find it interesting. The fact that, like, for me, the question is not... What is good about this as an art form? It's why are people so interested in this? And again, yes. I actually I have I have rules and boundaries around what I will and will not watch. So Rick and Morty, it has it has foul language. I yes. can deal with that. I never watched. I mean, okay, I know we're probably gonna start the debates around this again, but I never watched yeah. Game of Thrones because of the excessive <laughs> stuff that was in it. Right? Yeah. Um, so you have, and I think as a priest, we you know we. We follow our conscience with this one, yeah. um, but but Rick and Morty's been very. So I've been rewatching it again because I I just put a TV show on when I go to bed, so that's been the one I've been watching lately. And um, but it's so fascinating because yeah, it, it gets to the cl- point of the question, and it and this is the thing I always find interesting about nihilistic comedy. It can never resolve the tension between meaninglessness and the desire for meaning. Right. Right. And that that's a big tension in. In Rick and Morty, I find. Yeah. And I think that's fascinating. And that people are finding this something that speaks to their heart should tell us something. This is why it's important. For us as priests, it tells us this is where the culture's heart is at. So that's mm-hmm. what we need to preach the gospel to. Yeah. Right? And so that's where the formation comes for us. Yeah, I agree. Okay. All righty. Cool. This what do you got? is a tweet from Riley. Not, not, not producer Riley. Uh, Riley Cosgrove, and she says, you guys, a research study found that people who are more morbidly minded and recognize mortality and their own deaths are more likely to be emotionally resilient during this pandemic. Catholic Memento Mori gang, rise up! Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. And this is something that, um, even apart from COVID, I have found uh, that you will be more emotionally healthy as a human being if you meditate on your death in the light of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I've seen, uh, I, I probably mentioned it before on the podcast, um, but something that's, that struck me from when I was a seminarian, even doing um, what we call blessing services. It's just a funeral service outside of mass. Mm-hmm. A lay person can do it. Uh, but and, and it, I preface this by saying, Everyone handles grief differently. Mm-hmm. Everyone is in different stages of their spiritual life. So I'm not saying people who do certain things in a certain way are bad people, but I do see certain unhealthy things where families want to have the quickest funeral service possible, that they don't want to enter into the suffering that they're already going to experience anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's not a slow... There's, there's not the... There's no Holy Saturday for a lot of people. There's no sitting in that awkward tension that something bad has happened because, hey, death is bad. Suffering is bad. Pain Mm -hmm. is bad. We know that Christ transforms it and brings good out of it and can even make it into something good. But you have to go through the cross to get to the resurrection. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, you're not going to get to the resurrection unless you go through the cross, you go through that awkward Holy Saturday, that waiting sort of thing. And so, I, I, and this is something that you really get better at as a priest because you deal with people all the time. You can tell if people are processing things or if they're avoiding things. Mm-hmm. Um, if and a lot of times that is a normal um, defense mechanism. It's what the psyche has to do because the psyche isn't prepared to deal with the enormity of what is going mm-hmm. on, right? So it's not like something you can fix right away. Mm-hmm. But the Catholic who, in the light of the resurrection, of in the light of God's whole plan for everything and the eschaton, it makes suffering easier. And the mo- one of the more frustrating things as a priest, and I think in a way that a lot of parishes have failed, is that we don't prepare people for death. Mm-hmm. And so when death strikes, they're destroyed. And you mm-hmm. see this, and you, know, you, you hear stories about uh, people who, like, a loved one dies, and, you know, uh, or he dies in a, an incredibly tragic circumstance and they leave the faith because of that. And like I said, I'm not judging that person because it's not necessarily uh, their fault. They weren't taught and raised up in this. Uh, 
But the families that I've seen who uh, enter deeply into the spiritual life, while the funeral and while the death of their loved one is still painful, is still sad, there's still all those very complex emotions, ranging from anger to sadness to numbness, um, they're able to get through it in a much healthier way because ingrained in them is the truth of Jesus Christ. Uh, and it's it, it feels like so many people, they're not avoiding these funeral rites because they want to have a celebration of life. They're avoiding the funeral rites because they're afraid of their own death. And now that's nothing. I will never, ever preach that at ma- at the funeral mass, right? That mm-hmm. I'm doing something different. I'm trying to bring mm-hmm. comfort to the family, trying to bring some mm-hmm. truth to them, um, the hope that is in Jesus Christ. And the funeral liturgy, the prayers, they're very hopeful, very, mm-hmm. very hopeful, right? Uh, but outside of those intense moments, I think we need to do a better job of preparing Christians for death. Mm-hmm. And in a certain way, that's kind of what the faith is entirely about. Yeah. Like, why do we go to mass every Sunday? It's not to not because we like full pews. It's not because we need money in envelopes. It's so that when you come to God face to face, he's not going to be a stranger. Mm-hmm. When you see God face to face, he's not going to be the same God you've been running away from your entire life. You know, it's about forming a relationship with the one who loves you so that when he looks at you with all of his love, when you have passed on, that gaze of love is something that you embrace and don't run away from. And that will be heaven for you. So, uh, so yes, in a smaller sense, yeah, if you are more um, memento mori, uh, remembering your death minded, Mm -hmm. then stressful times like this, uh, you can get through it in a more healthy healthy way. Mm Mm-hmm. I think especially when you're a priest, you're forced to become comfortable with death. Yeah. I, I, even before I was a priest, I remember when I was spending time in the Missionaries of Charity, like we ha- when I was there for four months, we had 20 people die when I was there. I still remember like, I think it was like day two I was there and somebody was being transported to, to come to the hospice and they actually died on the way. But because they are in transport, the sisters now had total care of the body. My first job was to clean a dead body. That's intense. Two days in. I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. It is. It is intense, right? And then, but by the end of it, like, I still remember because, like, the syst- there was a cemetery in San Francisco that kind of gave them um, burial plots for free for the guys who, they wouldn't have markers or anything, but they would have a place to be buried. Um, full body. And, you know, I, you know, every time, literally every time, especially, and especially when I put a, full, a body in a plot, the question always comes to the reminder always comes to me that is going to be me one day mm-hmm. and that question and that about death and that reality is meant to fo- is not meant to scare it's meant to focus to remove the extraneous stuff of life that interferes with your eternal destiny mm-hmm. and i think I think in some ways, many times, a lot of, not, not, not universally, obviously, but a lot of times, a lot of our struggles and faith and life, et cetera, comes from a lack of thinking truly about our death. Yeah. Um, because if we start to think about it, we have to start asking the question, what is there for me after this? And will my life have been made ready for this? Yeah. Right. And that, and those are important questions to ask. So again, like, yeah, we as priests, when we're doing a burial, you just, you're just reminded very Mm -hmm. easily in those moments. Um, I think like our struggle is often on the other side of things that you can kind of become numb to it, that you see it so often. (laughs) So how do you enter into someone's suffering without letting it destroy you? Without becoming numb, you and, know, it's yeah. it, doctors and nurses deal with this as well. I know yeah. uh, Catholic doctors and nurses that like you have a job to do, you have things to do, but you're going to be surrounded by death and suffering. Yeah. And I mean, in a way, I think there has to be a certain distance on our part because we have to be the person who leads the grieving family through the rites right. and rituals of death. And so our job is to be the one who is composed and stuff like that. It is, it is hard to show emotion sometimes it is, it's, it's, um, and sometimes, and like, sometimes I think even for us as priests, we're kind of, we can seem not uncaring, but just like, 
emotionless or numb to, to death. Not because we are numb to death, but sometimes, I don't want to put this, we have to learn how to control our reaction to certain deaths so that we can do what we need to do. Because it's not about me. Right. It's I carry an office to do a particular task in this moment. I, like, I know I've talked about it in the podcast before, but I still remember that that um, that death I had of the teenage boy a year and a half ago, two years mm-hmm. ago now. Um, I was terrified the entire mass. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't let that be shown because we had a church full of people there mourning tragedy. And so it was my job to lead them into hope somehow. And so I had to kind of ignore the terror. (laughs) And there's also something like that indulging in your emotion as a priest in that moment can be kind of a selfish thing to do as well. Yeah. Right. Because, uh, a lot of times you don't know this person like the family does. Right. And to pretend like you do or to like uh, let yourself be awash in the atmosphere would be a self-indulgent thing to do. It wouldn't be the sacrificial thing to do. Uh, and so figuring out a way to to balance that as well um, is, is difficult. And also, um, since we have a little bit of time, uh, I was actually very blessed growing up. My family has become much more Catholic as I've gone through seminary and become mm-hmm. a priest. But growing up, they were like, eh, kind of Catholic. Mm-hmm. And I remember um, f- funerals as a, as a kid were always big events because of a big family. And uh, during the visitation, uh, by the way, remember when you could have visitations? Um, there would always be like a lot of laughter and a lot mm-hmm. of sadness and storytelling. And that was a, that was a blessing I had mm-hmm. growing up. But I remember, and I don't know who had died, some member of my family. And me and the other kids were outside of the actual viewing room. And I kept like poking my head in to see what what is going on there, right? And then the other adults kept pulling me away. Like, no, 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 don't go in there. Don't go in there. Don't don't look. Don't look. And then my dad was like, no, 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 no. My dad took me and we went over to the body and we knelt down. And I didn't pray because I didn't really know how to pray that much. But see, being there with my dad mm-hmm. and seeing that he wasn't afraid, he was like, this is what you do. Mm-hmm. This is a holy moment. And I don't even think you would have had like the, the theology to talk about it, but something about that Catholicism was ingrained in him enough like this is what you do. And having that experience as a, as a young person, like that really, it was a blessing that helped me understand that this is a sacred moment. This is an important moment. And it's a moment you shouldn't shrink from as difficult as it may be. And I've, I've always been thankful for that. That's been very helpful throughout my ministry and the rest of my life. Cool. That's awesome. That's beautiful, mm-hmm. actually. That's really beautiful. Yeah. Um, great. Well, ready for some exhortations? Let's do of it. Of the pres- presbyteral sort? Yes. All right. It's time <laughs> for presbyteral sort. exhortations. And now it is time for presbyteral exhortations. Oh, yes. yes. Quite good. Quite good. Indubitably. Mm-hmm. I bet they can't wait to learn. They're going to learn so much. <laughs> it's my favorite part. Oh. So this is one of these podcast episodes that's inspired by another podcast that I was listening to one day. I'm listening to more podcasts again now that I do more driving. Listen, listen, listen. Which podcasts? Not one with priests. Yeah. Okay. Wait. (laughs) (laughs) That's better. Okay, go ahead. Uh, no, I was listening to Catching Foxes. I was catching up on some Catching Foxes episode the other day. <laughs> That's my commentary. <laughs> we're, we're we're going on them tonight. I know. <laughs> <laughs> we love the guys. We love Luke and Gomer. Um, Absolutely. Uh, they were talking. It was his episode about like everything's an emergency, mm-hmm. and it got me reflecting a little bit around parish life because like the whole point of the episode was was just to say that you know actually a lot of things are falling apart everywhere (laughs) societies families like parishes the church a lot we are going through a bit of a revolutionary moment but it's one of those moments where it's like um you know there might be a tragedy just down the street but you're making dinner type of thing right sure we we often think that big revolutions 
mean a total societal collapse, but that's often not the case. You can't actually, because then you have to build literally everything from the ground up and that's impossible infrastructurally wise. So, um, and I think he, I think he had a good point about this. So, but I want to focus in on that a bit because I think a lot of Catholics are feeling, um, some despair around the future of the church in terms of numbers yep priest vocations we have we have worries about will my kids practice the faith when they grow up we have worries about the parish that we know and love will it be there in 10 15 20 years and those are real concerns and sometimes i think we as priests can be dismissive of it not because we don't care but we know sometimes we just can't do we can't control any of that sometimes right um and so we just, you know, it's like whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Like there's, you know, if a parish has got to close, the parish has got to close. But I don't know. I find sometimes priests can have that that attitude sometimes. But um, well, uh, yeah, okay. So there's okay. Go ahead. Uh, so my diocese uh, is, in fact, I was just on a presbyterial council meeting where we voted to. Um, Combine a whole lot of churches, and combining a whole lot of churches and parishes means that a lot of parishes are, I voted to crush them. I, mm-hmm. I crush people's dreams with a vote. Mm-hmm. It's not actually my decision to make, it's ultimately the bishop's decision to make. Uh, but I remember getting to my first assignment, and it was three parishes, two priests, three different parishes, and kind of being taken aback by how devoted people were to their parishes. Mm-hmm. For all kinds of reasons, yep. and some more noble than others, but they were very devoted to their parishes, and realizing that that experience was completely foreign to me. Right Now, it was foreign to me in the sense that I grew up in a suburban parish. It started off as an all-purpose room, then we built a new church, but I was never super invested in my own parish growing up. And then I went to seminary. I was visiting churches all the time. Mm-hmm. So being ingrained in the community is not an experience that I have. Right. And I would and I think, say that's similar for me too. Sure. But I think even if that was an experience that a priest had growing up, a lot of priests move so often and change and drastic change is such an important part of their lives that they can be kind of numb to this experience uh, of parishioners mm-hmm. that, you know, we look at them and they're like, it seems like their world is crumbling and we don't get it. Uh, because we like, we know the world isn't crumbling, but actually right. it kind of is for them. Right, because we, we haven't been in that parish for 50 years. Right. And this is the deep, dark secret that I that bothers me. Because we say all of the time, uh, the church is not a building, which is true, but the church building is not a building. It's a home for these people. That's what it is. So when you're destroying their buildings or telling them they can't go to mass there anymore, you're taking them away from their home. It, it may be completely and utterly necessary to do this. Yeah. But it doesn't take away that thing. Right. So it can be very difficult. So like I, it was, it, it is my job as part of the former seven parishes that are now one parish. It's part of my job to lead these people into a new future. So I have to do it, right? right. That is my ministry. That's why I've been assigned here by the bishop. So I have to do it. Uh, and you can, if you just look at it on paper, it should be easy. But then you have to enter into all these people's lives. And that's a very difficult thing to do, yeah. but it's and a necessary it, thing to do. And it's hard to do, too. <clears throat> it's hard to do, too, because, you know, I get it. People want priests involved in their lives, but yeah. we are so short on priests. The fact that people want priests at every little thing all the time. I'm sorry. Those days are gone right now. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Just they're gone. I'm sorry. There's. I wish I could say they aren't, because if a priest is at every little thing all the time, um, they're going to die of exhaustion. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So, but, 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 but this is what I want to focus on anyways, though. This is not what I want to focus on. I'm just saying like, I recognize the, I recognize the, the stress that people feel and, and listen, and those stresses are being um, amplified right now. Right. Because of everything. Because of everything. Parish incomes are going down, um, all sorts of things we have to. And, and so I've always been struck by some different documents the Vatican has put out because I think there is a solution to go forward. But this requires approaching parish life in a new way, but not in like those formats of different um, programs that say how to, you know, revitalize your parish through, you know, flashy materials and big screens in your church and everything like that. Um, 
modernizing the music. I don't actually think that has long-term value personally <clears throat> because what it does, it actually still builds in. It actually still feeds on the old programs model of parish life. But if you read like certain church documents, so I'll give you one example. There, there's, there's church documents on the use of churches for concerts. Interesting. Yeah. Parishes for concerts. Yeah. And it's beautiful because in it, it's a, it actually strongly encourages churches to hold concerts. Why do you think that's the case? Um, interesting. Um, well, I mean, on a certain practical level, churches back in the day were literally built for acoustics. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's part of that. But also uh, that the bringing together of community, the experiencing of anything that's true, good, and beautiful is good and leads us to God. Um, eh, those are the thoughts off the okay. top of my head. It's an experience of culture. Okay, yeah. Right? And now we're, uh, the church has guidelines of what, what kind of music you should have in your churches and stuff like that. It often to, ought to be... I at least beautiful. Yeah. What is it? Yeah. Docu- those documents have to say about uh, glow sticks. Like, can we have a church rave? <laughs> you know, I feel actually kind of bad saying that because some of our old church buildings have been turned into like reception halls, and there's literally raves in some of these ancient. Thank God, ancient thank God, it's America. Thank but, you God, know. they're they consecrated. <laughs> but yeah, um, no, I mean, like it, it's it, there. There are guidelines around beauty, sacred music, and stuff like this, but. They say the parish ought to be a place of culture. And that kind of phrasing has always stuck with me. And it's always been at my heart as a desire for a parish. But I don't know why. It's not until now that it's starting to really like come to the fore for me as like a pastoral plan in a way. And I think the way, you see, we have to start thinking not in a five-year term. We have to start thinking and we have to start past like quote unquote pastoral planning in terms of generations. We have to start, we have to start playing a longer game because the church as 11 is in the business of building civilization because civilization is a place where people live. And so the church wants to be 11 to that. Um, Civilization is going through some major crises right now and the church has the possibility to become a place where life is lived. And I, so why am I saying this? So there's a few reasons. First is because like one of the problems you hear all the time and we still hear it. And I, I, I'm scratching my head that I'm starting to still even hear it from people who are more our age. Um, my kids don't want to go to church anymore, but I, they went through their catechism programs and stuff like this. And I'm like, okay, great. What was your life of prayer at home? And I just get the blank stares. Right. Oh, we went to church on Sundays. Okay, great. They went to Catholic school. Okay, great. What did you do to live the life of faith at home? Mm-hmm. What did, and then did you integrate yourself into the life of the parish? What do you mean? I was like, did they did, oh, you mean like I went to a, a, a nice Columbus breakfast once, I guess. Well, yeah, you see, so I'm like, you see, that's the, why your kids aren't practicing the faith. You see, I think a lot of times, for example, kids don't practice the faith after they've been through a catechism program or whatever. The catechism program could be the best in the world, right? The best in the world. But they're going to internalize what they've learned when they see that what they've learned actually leads to a, a, a flourishing way of life. So by this, I mean that you're having maybe a family group every Sunday after mass in a church hall. Not right now, obviously, but um, um, you're, whereby you have kids running around and stuff like this. And they have an, you see, it's not just about information. It's also like Newman's illative sense, right? This idea that you learn just by osmosis. And you start to see this as a way of life. And so I think parishes need to becoming more centers of life again. This is harder because we're not as geographically centralized as we once were. And it means some sacrifice on the part of the laity as well in terms of saying no to certain programs and stuff out there so that they can actually start making the church as a place of, and a way of life. But I think if we start treating the parish as a place of culture again, as a place of encounter and life, I actually think we could see some really positive turnaround thoughts before you maybe go into practicalities. Yeah. Um, I think the problem is parishes 
have formed generations of Catholics in the exact opposite. Yes. So like you know, so when we say like oh like this is something that the this should happen with the laity, I think we need to also like also say that uh, it's parishes' fault that this is the attitude of the laity. Right. Uh, like how many parishes have any kind of young adult or adult faith formation or events? Like a lot of times, like for for years and years, it's been you catechize the kids and then they're done, mm-hmm. and that has been sending a message. Mm-hmm. Um, or you have you know, what are the events at the parish? Um, there's mass, and then maybe nothing else. Maybe there's like a sewing group or whatever, or maybe there's there's lots of events, but they're and you know I'm sure a lot of people enjoy them, but a lot of them are just uh, bad. Mm-hmm. They're bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are just lame. Um, this is what this is why young adults like when they see a parish event, um, they're thinking of of gyms and folding chairs. Right. Um, this is also. Hmm. <sighs> Um, I'm definitely thinking out loud on this one, but it's been a thought. It's been a brainworm of mine sure, for a couple sure. weeks. Sure, sure. And I don't disagree with it. And I think it takes a lot of courage to totally rethink uh, a parish. Um, but I think it's also, if we want to do this, that's going to have to take up all a majority of your time and effort mm-hmm. as a priest. Mm-hmm. Like even the idea of okay, like having a concert. And this is a, also a weird cultural thing. Like the idea of having, you know, Mozart played at your um, church. Mm-hmm. That's not the same as Mozart being played in the 1918, 1700s. I don't know when Mozart wrote music, but whatever. <laughs> but yeah. uh, like, yeah. because it's so th- that is a different kind of cultural experience. Mm-hmm. Because, like, uh, or it's just the whole difficulty with the, the great unstoppable trending the desire for more traditional things in the church, there's always for us going to be an aspect of artificiality because it's not ours right now. Right. But that's my thing. I'm thinking we to, to support the tradening, it needs to become ours. Yes. Okay. But I, I mean, I mean, I'm not disagreeing, but I'm thinking about how uh, every, every enthusiastic young seminarian, they, right. they read some sort of article or see something on beauty, right? Yeah. And they're like, ah, beauty will or, save the world. Or they read and what does that liturgy. mean? Let's all learn how to smoke pipes. Um, <laughs> right. No, and no, like, I, I, I know that. It has to be – so this is kind of getting now to like, okay, nuts and bolts about this because like, I think it – By I the way, I was I was that seminarian, so I'm owning yeah, yeah. myself. Okay. But, no, but before you get into it, yeah. uh, just to finish the thought, um, it's it's – I think we just have to be very humble about this project. Yes, absolutely. No, 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 absolutely. Yeah. And like, and realistic about what your parish can and can't do, right? And what it can and can't support. I think in this regard, this is where involving the laity will actually be of, of great help uh, because it's going to be their job to, like, like, I just, I guess I have some dreams of things I might be able to do in my parish one day um, that I would really like to do. And I think I actually have a space and the people to do it, which is really exciting. Um, it's... We need to, I mean, part of it is we've been screaming over and over again, the current model doesn't work because it's the, because it's the old model and it's not wrong, but it means like, I think it means a few things. So I think first and foremost, it means formation by the priest through homilies almost like just beating over the head in in the sense of like being repetitious in multiple homilies of what is the church and what is the nature and mission of a parish and just saying it over and over and over again until they're sick and tired of it that's one space and 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 behind all this by the way fasting and prayer like that that for me is like almost like i don't even need to say it because i just think it's just presumed okay but if the, you see, if a parish becomes a place of culture, it becomes something alive. And when something is alive, it's attractive. Right? That That's the key. Um, I think a lot of times our parishes aren't attractive. Not all of them, but because they're dead. D- yeah. Right? Not not in terms of like they're not literally dead, but I mean like they're just yeah. kind of just doing and the bare minimum. And not saying like there are, there are earnest and holy people there and it's not discounting any of that. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, okay. 
so what is this going to start looking like? How do they, because I, I think if we can start, if a parishes, and like, this is the thing, this doesn't just depend on the priest. And this is why I'm saying it here, because like, okay, this obviously our experience is more priestly, but this is stuff that I think the laity can do legitimately. And I also think um, there is a point to expanding upon the idea that the parish is not just the building. And that they, so when I say the parish is a place of culture, I mean the whole body of, of these people is the culture. It's a way of life whereby they're all out at McDonald's one Sunday after mass having McDonald's breakfast and everyone sees the joy and happiness around these families and, and, and the, the life that is being brought about this. And it might start posing a question. I've seen this happen sometimes where people will go up to some families and say, why are you so happy? <laughs> and they'll just say, well, oh, we just got back from church. So that's what I'm saying. Like we, we become a sign already just by, by the fact that we are living a life. Okay. So my, my focus is more, um, I think doing things like concerts, but not just putting on a concert, but it's something that a, the parish in terms of its actual parishioners show up for, but th like that's a nice, easy middle ground to invite people to. It's not mass. <laughs> it's an easy invite become something evangelizing whereby the priest if we're if, listen, it doesn't have to be your choir it can be you can bring in an outside group but the priest is going to insist that if you're going to rent our space we're going to say a prayer to open and close the concert and the priest is around and the people are around inviting talking mingling in this life where it becomes a place of education not just in terms of ccd but adult education and not just adult education for your parishioners but having topics that might appeal to people outside your normal reach right so like having a, a lecture maybe on hey let's what's a christian's understanding of nietzsche <laughs> right yeah, yeah yeah stuff like that or, or hey what's good about nietzsche maybe is, is a better wait they're going to talk that's, about that that's a clickbait that's yeah, a exactly clickbait right there yeah i i mean like i'm just something or and then you have like like i think i've talked about my ideas around baptism prep and stuff like this but because like here's the thing the reason why am I saying all this? What is the number one piece of pe reason people aren't going to church? Who are Catholics? Because it doesn't affect their lives. And yes, yes. And I would add one more thing. Mm -hmm. They don't know anyone. They feel alone when they go in. And oh, so yeah, maybe, maybe, that's, maybe. A big, mm -hmm. that's a big hindrance for a lot of people. They don't make that step forward. Not because they're not interested, but it's because they literally don't know anyone. Yeah. And that's a massive barrier that needs to be overcome. So you create spaces where it's easy for people to encounter each other through life-giving efforts, through making our programs more focused around building life and less around having to do a program X, Y, and Z. I think when we start to do stuff like this, the parish becomes vibrant, alive. And, and this is the other thing. It also needs to be done by, a, like, I think this is work for the priests. They need to do it in such a way that this continues whether or not they're there. So that doesn't become surrounded around the personality of the priest. Because that's always a big problem. Your pastor leaves. He gets moved to another place. And then it all falls apart because he hasn't built up the laity in such a way to actually build this. But like, so, because like, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, when parish culture actually comes to become life-giving, it builds up the local people, but then it spills over to becoming evangelizing. And that's when we're going to do our best work. I don't know. I'm kind of rambling a bit, but... No, I think you're making some sense. But okay. let's, throw in, let's throw in a hot take. Okay. Uh, you said, you know, we're talking about this, obviously, because we have more lay people listening to our podcast right. than priests, obviously, right? right? But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's my hot take. This is completely dependent on the priest. Okay. And it's completely dependent on the priest because father can decide to unleash the laity or to crush them. Mm -hmm. And like there are, so for example, uh, I met with a group of ladies who uh, wanted to do a lot of stuff for young families. They wanted to do events that were kind of fun. So like you can throw all your kids in a room and have them run around. The adults can hang out and that sort of thing. They did some of those events and it was it was great. A lot of you know parents showed up. It was it was wonderful. But then they wanted to do uh, something like um, a a rosary march 
or a Eucharistic procession, mm-hmm. right? And we were just getting involved in that, and then the COVID happened. Well, uh, a few weeks ago, my pastor was like, hey, this has been brought to my attention. Let's do it. And he unleashed the lady. Mm-hmm. And it was beautiful and it was organized. We had, I mean, because we did, we did, and you know, our parish staff did some coordination here and there um, and did some of the uh, heavy lifting as far as getting permission from the county and blah, 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 blah. But like uh, the Blue Army showed up mm-hmm. with their statue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, our teens showed up to hold candles. Mm-hmm. We had people volunteering and bringing giant rosaries right. that they had in their home, right? Yeah. They, the lady were unleashed and were able to do this thing. Yeah. Or um, now we're going to do a, a, a kind of weekly thing where um, there'll be some parishioner who will read uh, the gospel and have like three reflection questions. So it'll be mm-hmm. on a YouTube format. It'll be on a podcast format. Yeah. So they'll do that. Um, but on top of that, there will be a chance for people to gather and talk about this sort of thing too, right? And this is an idea that completely came from, from uh, our parishioners. Mm-hmm. And I've seen there is a lot of energy bubbling under the surface of a lot of parishes. But if you have a pastor who's afraid of change or afraid that if something goes wrong, it's going to hurt my image, which is going to hurt the image of the parish. If you if you have someone at the top who isn't allowing these things to happen, I would even say dad also has to encourage it. Mm-hmm. Right. Because if dad's not encouraging it, then the rest of the kids are going to be like, oh, I guess what we're doing is bad or wrong. Right. Or he's he's allowing it to happen, but he doesn't care. Right. Right. Um. Uh, so it's gonna. So obviously, the the, the summation of the hot take is it's not all about the priest. But I really right. do think, like, if, if the pastor isn't willing to do this stuff, then it's not like the parish is hopeless. Because right. hey, you can still meet at each other's houses. Exactly. Hey, you can still do things. But that's not the ideal. Right. And nor is it. Nor is it. Nor am I saying that everything absolutely has to be done in a church hall. Right. I think more things shouldn't be done. Um, but there's something about having the spiritual uh, thumbs up and encouragement from the man you call father that allows these things to flourish. Yes. And so, I mean, like, I agree with you there. It's the priest um, needs um, the priest needs to be um, spearheading it in a way, but he should he should make it to the point where the day comes where if he leaves the new guy comes in, nothing's... There's so much inertia that... Exactly, exactly, right? And that, yeah. I think that that's that's more what I meant by that. Because, no, sure, I agree, here. initially... Oh, no, absolutely, initially it needs to. And it's... it's. It, I just... In some ways, I still... I still feel like if we could get past the polemics and actually do stuff like... Listen to what the Second Vatican Council actually says around the laity... And what is the nature and mission of the church? I think we can find in this a lot of richness that can form, inform, and promote our our life as Catholics. Because this is actually what the council is trying to do, is trying to rebuild culture from within. Um, but recognizing but i think i i do like there are places of hope for this so i think there are some also some tactical choices to make so i'll give i mean and again again, when i'm saying making these tactical choices i don't mean we're going to ignore everyone all the time but i do think there needs to be there are places where more emphasis can be placed because uh there's more energy to say yes to this kind of stuff and I, i i don't know about you but my experience is that any catholic i've met who's under 40 is Catholic by choice and by intention. Now that might be my Canadian experience here. I so I I um yes and no. Okay. Like certainly I've okay. met a lot of young fervent Catholics, right. but I also you know do marriage prep for young people who were shocked when they found out that they have to go to mass every sunday yeah so, well, well that's my thing but that, no, no, i'm talking about people who are like intention like they're going to mass every sunday that's what right. i'm sorry that's what i mean i mean like the yeah. active catholics under 40 if they're going to mass every sunday they go to confession once a month they're not doing this generally because this is just what you do there is an intentionality behind it that wasn't there before that that isn't there in others sometimes yeah i think that's true for a lot of places um okay. i think in some like in my area while there's certainly people like that that's absolutely true for there's still enough 
cultural oomph in my area. Right. Where you may have, not saying anything bad about their intentions. Right. But, and it's not like they're trying to just go through the motions, but their understanding of Catholicism right. is going through the motions. Okay. They want to be Catholic. That's interesting. They want to be holy. Right. And their understanding of how to do that is to go through the motions. Right. I guess for me, my, my, my experience generally is that if you have a family and you're going to mass every Sunday, it's very rare that they just do this out of habit. Yeah. It's definitely, I think the majority of the culture right. in the West that if you're going to do this, it's taking a lot of effort. Yeah. You can't, okay. it's uh, swimming yeah. upstream. But these are the, these, those are your foundation stones. Yeah. Because they want stuff like this for a few reasons. A, cheap entertainment. Hey, we're going to have a potluck on Sunday. Right? That's an yeah. easy thing for me to show up. My kids can run around without any worry. Parents can socialize with each other. The teenagers can hang out with each other. Like and part of this too is is like I like I love what happened with your procession there because it was integrated as well. So like while I think I think a lot of focus has to go with these young families for a variety of reasons. And I'm not saying again, I'm not saying we're ignoring everyone else. I'm just saying you put a lot of energy into them so that they can build up the foundation so that everyone else can join in. But that it moves towards this idea whereby everyone shares everyone shares a life with each other. And I think for it to become culture, it needs to be saying, we recognize there are distinct groups, but these distinct groups don't exist for their own sake, but for the service of the whole body of the parish so that they become integrated with it. So that you have, you have eight-year-olds who see the 75-year-old retiree who only there on Sunday coffee is loves to see them because they're sharing a life together. I guess this is my main point is that a parish needs to become a place of shared life. If yeah. you want the idea of, but the idea of, of instituting more programs again, uh, we need to start making decisions around stuff that's shared life. And this is, but this is, but what I'm trying to say though too, is that while it does require the pastor to spearhead, it doesn't always have to happen that way. I know of a friend who uh, hosts a young adult doll group at her house and they have 20 to 30 young adults every week or every time they have their sessions. And this, and these are people from different parishes even. Mm -hmm. That's a great thing. And that's a work of the parish that doesn't need to f focus in on the, the structures of a parish. Um, that's good stuff. And that's where we need to start thinking outside the box. What can I do to reach out to those people who I think are like-minded, who want to share energy, who want to share, who see Christianity as a way of life and as a choice that I make day in, day out and to build life up with each other. And then pastors and priests who also start making decisions around this way. It's hard. It's really hard because it really means gutting a lot of stuff. It means making liturgy, not into a gimmick but into the worship of the Father. It means offering opportunities for encounter with those beyond the parish walls. It means fostering friendship and communion amongst people. In some ways, like there's always the jokes that priests play matchmakers, right? But in this sense, actually, I think this is where priests should say, I'm going to be a matchmaker of friendship, right? Like I'm going to, I'm going to be create spaces where I know these people will get along I just need an opportunity for them to encounter each other. And then that starts to build life and friendship. And then they start seeing each other at church. And then they start, um, you know, it's just, it's like, it's not hard. Like I've, I know I've talked about my young adult group before when I did in Victoria, but it was really not hard. We did, it was simple. We had a meal, we had a talk, we had prayer. And so many of the people who went to that are still friends today. Yeah. And they, they've started their own Bible study groups and stuff like that. And that's great. And that's the whole idea. It just naturally flows. We don't need to be so programmatic about it anymore we just need to let we need to create opportunities of encounter between people and we need spaces for that this is one thing brandon brought up in his book right um about like those what, what were they called like those third spaces or something like that and that how those are disappearing more and more he made the point that really a parish should try and come into that again and that he's right and and, and i say all this with the caveat it's not just about building community for community's sake it's about building communion you see, the, the distinction is community is just like, hey, it's just friendship just so I can have some company. At least that's how I think often we kind of see it. But when you build up communion, you're sharing a way of life, you're sharing a, a way of faith, and you're sharing a view of the world together. And you're willing to suffer with each other with it. You're willing to celebrate with each other with it, et cetera. Sorry, I rambled on a lot there. No, no, you're fine. You're fine. Um, I think also, to, I mean, uh, another difficulty and another um, a blessing 
in some areas, you're going to have to rediscover what culture is. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm thinking about like super safe Starbucks suburbia, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. where there isn't exactly a culture. Everything is so atomized, yeah, uh, and everything is so um, based on the consumer as an atomized consumer that there's there's nothing there. And also, I think it's very important that like in a lot of places in the church in America, we do have groups of people who have a lot of culture that's authentic to their family, mm-hmm. they just might not look like the rest of our parishioners as well. And how to reach out to them and to ask them to share their life with us as well. Um, and even what you said about uh, going outside, uh, this might be a, a tangent, but it's just been, it bothered me, so I'm just going to mention it. Uh, I was in a meeting, and we were talking about these different areas in the diocese and blah, 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 blah. And they talked about this one area in the diocese that, oh, it's really growing. So it's a great opportunity for evangelization, you know, there because the, just the area is growing. And I'm thinking to myself, even in my own area, like we have enough people in my county to fill all seven of our church buildings. Mm-hmm. Yep. Exactly. Are we saying, are we saying that, oh, this area has a lot of people that look like us. So we'll be comfortable evangelizing exactly. to them. Yeah. A little bit awkward. Yeah. You know, like we weren't saying it out loud. Yeah. And like, I'm not an expert in these things. Yeah. I am as milked out suburbia as you can get. Don't yeah. let this Italian facade, you know, uh, fool you. Uh, but really, I guess the point to tie this in is to be willing to take risks, to yes. mess up a little bit, yeah. you know, and not to be perfect in it. It's a changing of the priorities of the parish. Right. And maybe I'll say this to conclude. And this is where, okay, speaking about evangelization, Mm. it's something we all need to do as parishioners, but it's not hard. I think we overtalk it. (laughs) I think we overthink it. I don't know. There's a whole podcast out there that tells us how to do it. And if it wasn't for like, I mean, if it was easy, you wouldn't need an entire podcast to to teach people how to do it. Build relations. Build, build friendship, show a way of life that attracts. Um, there you go. And, and it's, now nobody it, has to listen to every knee shall bow ever again. <laughs> take take that. that. Take that. Um, no, but I mean, like, listen, I'm not, I guess it, it, we need to, we need to actually just be comfortable. Cause here's the thing. I think the reason we're actually not willing to evangelize is because we don't think we have something good to invite people to. Mm-hmm. So let's give them something life giving to invite them to, and it will become easier to evangelize because you can just say, Hey, my parish is having uh, this Oktoberfest and I want you to be there. That's easy. That's part of evangelizing, right? It is. It really is. Um, or, Hey, we're having a massive celebration for the feast of St. Thomas with the Indian community. It's going to be Indian food and all sorts of things. You should come. I may have shared this before on the podcast, but I'll share it again because this, I think this kind of ties up a lot what I'm saying and shows a way forward. Uh, when I was a seminarian in Courtney, we I was with working with the young adult or the, the teens actually who were wanting to go to World Youth Day. They want to do some fundraising for this, obviously, because it's not cheap to go to World Youth Day. We're going to Madrid, Spain. So I said, okay, I'm going to pitch you guys an, a, a swing dance fundraiser because I love swing dancing and, <laughs> and I know how to run those events, right? Sure, yeah. So I said, you're going to sell, we're going to sell 400 tickets at 25 bucks a piece. And uh, the teenagers looked at me with fear in their eyes. And I said, don't worry, I will sell half the tickets. You guys only have to sell half of them. And, um, and I said, and this is how you're going to pitch it. What do you pay for a movie? Popcorn and a pop. And they'll say 25 to 30 bucks. And then I'll say, and that's what you're paying for this. So it's no different. Tell it to your friends. Sell it. And, and, and they did. We sold out 400 people. We raised $11,000 after costs with one night. That's pretty good. But I had someone come up to me that night. The place is packed. He goes, are you the guy who organized this? I said, yeah. He goes, I need to talk to you. I said, he said, you have Vietnamese here. You have people from Africa, North America, uh, Philippines. Like he goes, every culture of the world is here and they're all sharing life together. Like you're all just having fun. It's sad it had to be swing dancing, but hey. Anyways, and you know what he said to me? <laughs> what? He said, I think I need to become Catholic because I want this. Ooh. I want this. I was mm. like, yes, but that's the thing. You create an, extent, an event, an experience of encounter and friendship and life, and people will want in. 
So that's all you have to do. And that's what I'm inviting priests who listen, laity who listen, to find ways. I recognize right now with COVID, this might be more difficult. But start planning now for the day those doors open to go out on fire to build a culture in your parish whereby people will want to come to live. You know, I think what that story of that swing dancing uh, event really teaches us is that truly Jesus Christ is Lord of the dance. How dare you? Thanks for listening. <laughs> you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, you know, wherever you can find podcasts, we are there. You can email us speaking at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and now on YouTube too. So make sure you hit that subscribe button on the YouTubes. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at FR Harrison. You can find me forever making fun of swing dancing. Not in a doctor's office. Okay. Uh, I know that was the easy one. Yeah, that was the easy one. Uh, You can find the podcast at Clerical Pod, and we will see you all next week. God bless. Peace. Also, don't find me in the in the hospital or the doctor's office. That would break all kinds of HIPAA laws. You can't do that. Shame on you.